Hello, this is Tony Campolo, and the name of the show is From Across the Pond. The show is uh, hosted, hosted, hosted by me and Shane Claiborne. You probably know him as the author of a book called The Irresistible Revolution, which has sold hundreds of thousands of copies and has changed the lives of young people around the planet. I, Tony Campolo, have been teaching here at Eastern University for decades. Uh, you know, the, this school has my fingerprints all over it. And uh, we're here every week in this, in this show to promote red-letter Christianity. If you don't know about red-letter Christianity, please go to our website, redletterchristians.org. It's a movement that is intending to uh, get people to take seriously the words of Jesus. It's good to have the theology of Paul. It's good to have that theology under our belt. But Jesus called us to follow him. And to follow him, we have to know what he asked us to be, what he asked us to do. Red Letter Christianity is about that, being faithful to the teachings of Jesus. Tell us about the guest. Well, one of the things that w- that's really exciting is that we get to invite uh, guests onto the show. Often they're friends of ours, but they're also people that with intriguing callings and vocations. And one of those is our guest this week. He's a really great friend of mine, a hero. He's uh, His name is Reverend Rob Shank. Um, he's the president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, but this is what I also want to say about him is his parish is Capitol Hill. He's both a pastor and also a prophetic conscience in the middle of uh, Washington, D.C. So he's walked alongside some of the most powerful leaders in our country um, and been a little voice in their ear and prayed with them. Um, he's got an incredible story. He wrote a, a new book called Costly Grace, an evangelical minister's rediscovery of faith, hope, and love. Uh, so it's going to be a beautiful conversation. Thanks for joining us, buddy. This is Reverend Rob Shank. Okay. Thanks for having me. What a what a gang to keep company with. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you you and I first met when uh, we did this work around gun violence together. Um, we've done a bunch of stuff together since then. But I, I want you just for folks that aren't familiar with you to tell tell a little bit of. Uh, you know, in the 80s, pro-life meant anti-abortion, and you really began to, um, uh, to, to grow to include that, but beyond that. So talk just a little bit about that, man, because I, I think that's some of my own journey is similar to that. So tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Well, of course, we met at the time of what I call my third conversion. You know, for me, conversion is not a one-off experience. Mm. Uh, I think it's just part of the spiritual life. It's something that happens continuously to us. And for me, that whole encounter with gun violence here in our country, in the United States, which has a peculiar problem with it, in case anyone uh, around the world hasn't noticed yet, we have a very big problem with it here. And my encounter with it was part of uh, a big change coming late in my life. I had my initial conversion to Christianity when I was a teenager. That was a long time ago, 45 years ago. And uh, it was revolutionary. It was my first encounter with Jesus. I had been raised in a nominally Jewish home. I, I cared very little about anything religious. 
And then I had this encounter with this radical figure. How did that happen? Well, it actually happened uh, at the invitation of my own identical twin brother who had encountered a bunch of folks that were part of what was then called the Jesus People Movement. It was kind (laughs) of, uh, if you go back in time to the sort of... um, uh, you know, uh, counterculture generation in America. These were hippies. Uh, we were uh, long-haired, pot-smoking uh, radicals, and uh, more than a few had had uh, a religious experience that changed their lives, and I was hearing about it, he was hearing about it, he met some of these folks, and invited me to go to a meeting with him, and we went, I remember being very afraid. I had never been in a church in my life. Uh, I imagined the church to be a very angry, menacing place, and I thought as I sat there that uh, if they ever learned I was Jewish, that I'd be catapulted out the back doors. That never happened. There was a lot of love in that place, wonderful acceptance of my brother and me, and I went back, and I heard this message from the Sermon on the Mount, didn't even know what it was back then. Mm. But when I heard about the peacemakers and God's love for the poor and the marginalized, I felt like a minority in the community I grew up in. There were only five Jewish families in the entire town, and I felt like a minority and a marginalized person. And the message really uh, struck me. I went back, I heard a very simple sermon about knowing God. I wanted to know God. I had a moment there of talking with God for the first time that would change the course of my life. Mm. But then I would have a second conversion that was not a positive one, and it would take me on a 30-year journey. And, Tony, I'm going to make a confession for the very first time. Uh, I admired you during many of those decades of my life because you were such a strong voice and a very effective one, but I opposed you on an awful lot of your positions, and I'm ashamed to say that today. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I beg your pardon for it, because Mm. you were right, and I was wrong. But I had a second conversion, and and I call that my conversion from Christianity to Ronald Reagan Republican religion, Mm. which was distinctly different from the gospel I first heard in the Sermon on the Mount. And that took me through a 30-year journey, and then I had a third conversion in a re-encounter with this wonderful man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that helped me get to the place where I could meet Shane Claiborne. So it was, it was a big positive in my life, mm. but I now spend a lot of my time trying to repair some of the damage I did uh, during those 30 years of what I now think of as the wilderness. Mm. Mm. Your 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 humility is uh, uh, I I love it because I think it invites other people to realize exactly what you said that that the scripture says that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling that this isn't just about a a, a, a conversion moment but a movement of being shaped and formed and that's surely my my story too you know on a lot of the issues I care so passionately about like the death penalty. A lot of my life I spent, I spent on the other side, you know, opposing the position that I'm at now. And I know for you, like um, the, the consistent ethic of life, what it means to be for life, 
uh, really expanded in the middle of all of that shaping and forming too. Tell us a little bit about that because I, I know you're very active in the front lines, like in the street activism on the issue of abortion. And then you, you've told me that you kind of felt like there, there was um, a real problem with the, the narrowness with which we thought of what it means to be pro-life and that took you into other spheres of gun violence and, and the death penalty and stuff. Talk a little bit about that. And, and in the United Kingdom, uh, the gun violence is replaced by knife violence. They don't have as many guns. They have a lot of knives over there, and they have violence on the streets, not with guns, but with knives, but it's Mm. the same theme. It it sure is, and uh, it comes up often over here on this side of the pond, as you guys say, uh, in the U.S., where, you know, often... Uh, it'll be said, well, you know, if we take away the guns, uh, then people will start using knives. And that will be true because that's the condition of humanity. That's reality. People do kill and harm other people. The thing is here, we uniquely equip them to do that on a grand scale in Mm. a short amount of time. Mm. And that's what caught my, uh, my attention. Uh, was how we uniquely do that. We say, sure, we understand you're going to harm and kill people here. How about using this? You'll be able to do it uh, faster and better than anybody else. There's something wrong with that, and and we're treating that question. Uh, and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I have to tell you, this wonderful World War II era, young, brilliant, moral philosopher, theologian, pastor, uh, and Nazi resistor, helped me to see all of that in a framework of reality, Mm. because he he was a realist. I mean, this guy lived where we all live, in the real world, and it was one of the challenges he put out to the church of his time, to stop taking these flights of fancy into imaginary places where Mm. everything works perfectly, because it just doesn't. We're in a fallen world. Jesus dealt with that real fallen world, and that's why I think uh, you're onto something so big, both of you. But Tony, when when I first heard you talking about red-letter Christians, how important that is, because I think Bonhoeffer, if he teaches us anything, he teaches us that it's the Jesus hermeneutic that helps us to see not just uh, Scripture and the meaning of Scripture and how it applies in our faith and in our lives, but the world, Mm. how we see the world through the eyes of Jesus, who dealt with real people, with their real problems and the real consequences of their actions. So all of that was part of this. For me, I started rereading Bonhoeffer. We were dealing with the terrible problem here in the U.S. of the politicization of American evangelicalism, the co-optation by political forces of religion in the United States. I wanted to examine that when I did. It forced me to go back to Bonhoeffer's time and place to see what had happened there. That was his lifelong or his adult life was was dealing with the problem of politicized religion in Germany, which led to the Church declaring Adolf Hitler a gift and miracle from God. Mm. He confronted that terrible uh, dysfunction, 
and gave me inspiration to do the same here. And when I looked at him and looked at us here in the United States and, indeed, the politicization of religion around the world, I said, "Uh uh-oh, we're in big trouble. We need to recalibrate the compass. And I started with myself. Mm. That was not an easy process. Let's stop stop there just to reintroduce everybody. Maybe if you just tuned in, uh, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. Our show is across the pond because we're over here on the East Coast of the United States uh, talking about Jesus and justice, uh, talking about the red letters of the Bible, the the Gospels that often have the words of Jesus illuminated in red. Um, And we're also uh, gifted this week to have a special guest, Reverend Rob Shank, who's a great friend. He's um, been a mover and shaker in D.C. for a long, long time. He's the president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, among other things. Um, wrote a book called Costly Grace. Um, and so let's get back into that with, with the conversation around Bonhoeffer. He talked about cheap grace, and your book's called Costly Grace. Um, there's there's folks that would you know that say this is a Bonhoeffer moment in America. Tell us a little bit more about why you think Bonhoeffer's such a relevant voice to, you know, at such a time as this. Well, for so many reasons, but one is, of course, he calls us to personal accountability, to a a real assessment of ourselves, of our interior world, who we are in reference to our claims and many of us claim to be Christians, in other words, disciples of Jesus who mimic Christ. And yet, in his discussion of costly grace versus cheap grace, uh, Bonhoeffer uh, dealt with this problem of a a kind of spiritual um, approval or endorsement that, that exacts nothing from us, demands nothing from us. We just go on living our lives the way we want to, uh, in a way that pleases us, and we dub ourselves Christian. We give that uh, imprimatur, that badge to ourselves, without uh, surrendering anything uh, of ourselves or about ourselves. And we all carry, uh, you know, uh, we all carry prejudices, we carry opinions about ourselves, about others, we carry preferences about the way we want to live life, uh, how we want to live life, and Jesus challenges all of that about mm. us. Mm. We have to look first to ourselves. Bonhoeffer and others that he kept company with said, when you read the Bible, you must read it against yourself, mm. not mm. for yourself, not to justify yourself, mm. but to challenge yourself and to hold yourself accountable. And I've had to do that in my own life. You mentioned that I spent a lot of years as what we used to call a pro-life activist in this country. I now realize I was much more of an anti-abortion activist than I was a pro-life activist. Mm. And in that time, I used very harsh language to speak of those who uh, who provided abortion services. We would call them monsters, animals, uh, even worse, pigs. Uh, 
I would use that language from a stage. I'm deeply ashamed of that now. Uh, Bonhoeffer, by the way, was very big on confession and the need to make confession in one's life. And mm. I find myself doing quite a bit of it today, <laughs> making confession for that. I, I think it was Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton, they asked him, what's the biggest problem in the world? And he said, I am. Right. So that's, that's where we start. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And sometimes we need to say no more than that. I am. I am the problem. I was a very big problem. And uh, that's very tough, uh, you know, to humble oneself, to admit I'm wrong. It's certainly been very painful and difficult for me, but it's also been very freeing. And for the Christian, that's where it all begins, is when I go to the altar, as we use that term in our American evangelical parlance, we say you go to the altar. And what you mean by that is that you kneel down and you confess before God I don't have it all. Mm. I've been wrong. I have problems. I have needs. I need a Savior. I need the grace and love of God. It starts with that. It should be, uh, it, 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 it should be part of our entire spiritual journey, and it should end that way. Mm. You're I'm preaching at me. pretty late in life. Mm. You're preaching to me. Thank you. You know, as, as you've done this work out of, out of that space of self transformation and healing from the Holy Spirit. You've also been a voice with other folks that um, uh, are there in D.C. I mean, you, you've told me a little bit about how you feel your vocation and calling to, um, to, to pastor some of the folks that are really making decisions in our country, Congress folks, folks in the Supreme Court, folks in the, in the halls of power. And I'm reminded of, of Dr. King um, when Martin Luther King said that the church is not meant to be the master or the servant of the state, the church is meant to be the conscience of the state, the conscience of the nation. And um, how how have you felt that? Because it's got to be a, a delicate dance between pastoring and walking alongside of people and knowing when to speak truth and love. So tell us a little bit about that, especially in light of the, the season that we're in in America. Yeah, well, uh, I never... I... You know, I, I didn't always do that so well. In fact, uh, I started out uh, with that intention. I think I did pretty good in the early days, but it didn't take long before I was co-opted myself uh, by political forces and used, and m more often than I uh, care to admit, uh, I willingly allowed my ministry to be used for political ends. It took me a very long time, again, to come to terms with that. I took a little hiatus from it. Uh, I went where all people go to find themselves to the West Coast of the United States. <laughs> I'm not sure the geography had anything to do with it, but it got me far away from Washington long enough just for a season of time to kind of assess what had gone wrong mm. in my own ministry. And when I returned, I was determined uh, to be true to God and to my conscience and not uh, loyal to a political party or to a political faction or to a political agenda. That's very tough to do mm. in a place like Washington, D.C. I'm sure it's true in London. Uh, 
or, or Ottawa or anywhere else there's a capital in the world because there's always this battle between human uh, power and political and governmental power and the power of conscience and the power of right and the power of wrong, the power of morality, if you will, uh, our loyalty to God. Mm. Uh, there are many earthly lords that attempt to seduce uh, and subjugate us. And it's a constant struggle and always will be. I think about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, and, you know, he didn't always do that perfectly. Uh, he didn't always do it ideally, mm. but he did do it right to the end of his life when he was hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp at age 39. Mm. Uh, he was doing it right to the very last moment, uh, being true to his conscience as it was enlightened uh, by God. And, uh, you know, that's a model for us. And you that's, know, again, why I think we need Bonhoeffer in our own time. Yeah, You know, when you talk about being seduced, um, I feel that so deeply at a particular point uh, when uh, President Clinton uh, got messed up sexually, uh, getting engaged with an intern that was working in the White House, uh, and uh, his whole life was called into question with a great sexual scandal. He called me on the telephone and said, would you come and pastor me? And I said yes immediately, uh, but I, I didn't spell out in my own mind all the ramifications of that. In becoming his pastor through this difficult time, was I subtly being seduced into the Democratic Party as a kind of chaplain to a political ideology? And uh, I've fought against that and fought against that and fought against that. But it's so easy to be seduced by the symbols of power, being in the Oval Office time and time again, talking to the President of the United States time and time again. It's so easy to forget that you have a master and a Lord named Jesus, and uh, you are obligated to him, not to the head of the state. And it was difficult, and I'm not sure that I accomplished the task of being uh, uh, the prophet, being the Nathan that I should have been. So I, I feel very deeply as you speak, because I got caught up in that. Uh, I had to say yes to the president in his hour of need, but on the other hand, it was so seductive to become an agent of a political party rather than the prophet of God. Mm-hmm. We've got just wow. a few minutes left. This is uh, yeah, our, our brother Rob, very powerful. Rob Shank uh, that we're talking with. And in the last few minutes, uh, Rob, I wonder if you uh, tell us something else maybe we, did, we didn't know about Bonhoeffer that you think uh, his voice and his witness is uh, especially important to us today. Well, you know, there's a beautiful story about Bonhoeffer. Uh, on a particular day, he was sitting with uh, the band of pastors in training that he devoted so much of his life to, and uh, they were in a cafe when a Nazi motorcade passed by, and none of them knew what to do. They they were all... Uh, Nazi resistors. They they were uh, in complete.
complete opposition to what the Nazi party was doing in Germany. And uh, here Bonhoeffer stands up and gives the Hitler salute to the motorcade. And his, his colleagues were just scandalized. They were mortified, horrified that he had done this. And he looked down and with a little smirk, he said, it's going to cost you much more than a silly salute mm. Mm. in the days ahead. Mm. Wow. In other words, he kind of knew, you know, uh, he had to choose his battles right. He wasn't going to give his life for mm. a silly salute. Mm. It would mm. be That's something much, much more costly. I, that would be demanded of him and of his fellows. It's beautiful. It. It's that, that idea that we, we sometimes call revolutionary subordination. That hey, we're we're going to have to have this guy back on yeah, the show. We, we are going to have him back. I, the, the thing I thought of is when, um, you know, and the, the folks living under uh, Roman occupation, there was an old peasant saying that when the emperor passes by, the peasant bows on his knees and farts. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but, uh, that's good. Yeah, but that revolutionary subordination. So we unfortunately are out of time, but we're going to have uh, Reverend Rob Shank back. Yeah. Uh, this is Shane Claiborne. Tony Campolo. Tony the name of the show is From Across the Pond, promoting red letter Christianity. Go to the website, redletterchristians.org. And also make sure you get Rob's book, Costly Grace, a powerful book for this time. So we're out of time. We'll see you. We'll uh, be here next week. Catch us then.